You know, my guess is that we all probably have uh, good gifts um, that uh, we've gotten a time or two in our life. Maybe it was the Cabbage Patch doll um, that you got when you were in elementary school. Or maybe it was the latest and greatest game system as an early adolescent. Maybe it was that new piece of equipment for that sport or hobby that you enjoy to play later on in your high school years. Now, we've all received those type of memorable gifts, but I wonder, what would you consider to be the greatest gift you have ever received? The one material possession that, uh, as you think back on, you think, man, that was, that was just so awesome. I'm really glad I got that. Maybe it was that bicycle when you were uh, 11 years old. Mom and Dad got you a new bike, and you rode it back and forth to work at a time or two. You, you rode it to school. You rode it around town. It was that bicycle. Or maybe for you ladies, it was the curling iron that allowed you to rock that 80s uh, hair, you know, that stood up a little bit off the top of your forehead, right? As I thought about this week, um, I, I, I came to find that, for me, my greatest gift I, I think I ever received came right as I was graduating high school. Um, I had made plans to go off to Bible college down in Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm originally from Indianapolis. It was about a 400-mile uh, drive down to, to, to Knoxville. At the time, I was driving a silver Ford Escort sedan. Uh, I know it was beautiful, 1991 Ford Escort. Um, I thought I was the, the real deal with that. Um, we called it the silver nickel. It was silver in colors, and it wasn't worth very many nickels. Uh, so, uh, now my parents, they are uh, middle-class Americans. I do believe they are blessed. I think they would say the same thing. But they are not overly wealthy by any means. So when I pulled up into the driveway one evening, and my dad opened the garage door, and there was this new-to-me, uh, slightly used black Pontiac Grand Prix sitting in the, uh, the, the garage, I was pretty excited. Um, you would have thought I had hit the jackpot. A bigger engine, right? Overall, a safer car to drive back and forth to college. It had to have been one of the best gifts I've ever received. And I'm not sure what it is for you, what that material possession, what that gift was, but I can tell you this. The gift, no matter what you look back on, maybe it, um, it was the, the Cabbage Patch doll or something like that. It was not great um, because of the fact that it was simply given to you. It was great because a great gift is not just a gift that is given but a gift that is received and put to use, right? That Pontiac had some 80,000 miles on it when I first got it, and I began driving it back and forth from Knoxville uh, to Indianapolis to home. Um, I remember the first evening I was on campus at my my college. Um, I took a group of friends out, newly found friends, uh, from our freshman orientation, and uh, we hopped into the car, and little did I know the girl that was sitting right behind me would later become my wife. Yeah which later that car took us both back and forth to Columbus, Ohio, where she was from, um, back and forth from school together. I spent many nights driving friends around on long trips or stuffing that car full of all my stuff from the dorm heading back home for the summer. Six years later, 100,000-plus miles later, I sold that Pontiac. It was full of memories. It had served its purpose. But you see, a great gift is a gift that is put to use, right? It's one that we, we, uh, we take and we receive, yes, but then we put it to use. Maybe that Cabbage Patch doll taught you how to care for something, and you remember dragging it around by the hair for some time, but you also remember cuddling it like a baby, and it taught you how to be a caregiver. Maybe that bicycle that you pedaled up and down the streets um, took you back and forth to work many, many times, made sure you weren't late to school, and got you from where you needed to be uh, to where you were supposed to be. Yeah. And maybe you still use that hot curling iron, just not today to 
do the, the bouffant as much any longer. Over the past several weeks, hasn't it been such a blessing to be reminded of that truth, that Jesus is greater than? It's been such a blessing as we studied this book of Hebrews to be reminded of that, that sole principle, that Jesus is, is greater than. And can I say one thing? Isn't it such a blessing to have a minister, a preacher, who is willing to confidently preach the word on Sunday mornings, God's word? Somebody that's not going to compromise it or make it more palatable to the taste, um, right? That's willing to say, no, this is what God's word says, and we need to hear that. I'm grateful for men like Matt in my own personal life, and I'm sure you guys are too, to hear him on Sunday mornings to preach the word. Now, the central theme of Hebrews, if you you get into the book of Hebrews, you open it up and you look through it, the the whole theme is just this this truth. Jesus is greater than. That's that's what was originally needed to be written to this this audience. Now, now Matt shared with us this audience was a, a... a Jewish audience that had come to know Christ. They had seen that Christ was the fulfillment of the Jewish law, um, and, and these people were becoming no longer to be of the Jewish faith, but instead to be of this newfound Christian faith, the, the, sometimes referred to as the way. They saw Jesus as the Messiah. But they were beginning to add things to it, right? So they needed to be reminded that it was Jesus only. And in Hebrews 1, verse 3, we were reminded of just that. It says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Basically said, it is finished, right? That's what he said on the cross, and that's what this pastor says. It has been finished. I am the way. There's nothing more than Jesus that we need. He is, is greater. But Christ didn't just come as a warrior, right? He didn't come as a, a warrior leading a rebellion. No, he came as a humble servant, right? One that then experienced suffering and pain and more in this world. God wrapped himself in the cloak of humanity and experienced what we experience. So we learn this in Hebrews chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Thus he becomes, as Hebrews 2 tells us, the pioneer of faith. He gives us the hope that we have. His perfection for our imperfection. That's the gift of salvation. Because it is not about what we have done, but instead about what he has done for us, we can now then have security. And that's what we looked at last week in Hebrews 3, where it says this. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. You see, the writer of the book of Hebrews has just described to us the greatest gift Jesus as the answer. Jesus as greater. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. The old way of the sacrificial system, the the ways of not measuring up to the law of oppression and more are no longer because Jesus is greater than. Now in chapter 4, he continues this talk and he talks a little bit about Christ as the the high priest. Um, And and he begins then to move into chapter 5. And that's where we're going to turn today if you'd like to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. And as he does this, as he, he begins to, to, to share more and to talk more about this, he, he takes a, 
a kind of a stop. There's, a, there's an abrupt stop. Um, he, he, he pulls away from this talk about Jesus being greater than, and for a moment, he just, he quickly dives into some issues that are going on with the people he is writing to. And he says this in verse 11, it says, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you. And then we'll stop right there for now. You see, he has just described that gift, the gift of Jesus being greater than, and then he suddenly takes a stop because he wants to focus on something. He wants to share with them that a great gift is not just a gift that is given, it is the gift that is received and then put into use. Matt told us last week that the word of God is like a mirror, right? Uh, that when we, we look into it, we see a reflection of something that we are called to be. You know, sometimes when we look into the mirror, Right? A lot of times, right, we get up and we want to adjust our collar, he said, or we want to fix our hair. Sometimes you look into the mirror and you see something that you don't really want to see. Um, something that you go, oh man, I look pretty bad today. And in this passage, as he uh, begins to share this in Hebrews 4, it says this in verse 12. We're going to go back a chapter. Sorry, it says in verse 12 of Hebrews 4. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So just moments before he starts into chapter 5, he takes a moment and he says, let me, let me tell you something. The word of God, it's alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. There's a reason why the author says this, and then just a few paragraphs later, he lays into the people. I mean, he really, he, he's going to cut. In this moment, he is ready to say, here's some hard things to take in, but you need to, you need to hear this. That's where we're going to pick up this morning in verse 11. It says, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand than in verse 12 of chapter 5. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. All right, you want to talk about a cutting statement to a group of people. He is telling men and women that had studied the word, people that were of the Jewish faith. That, you know, in, in that time, these people would have memorized books at a time, not verses, books at a time. They would have known the word of God. They would have understood the prophecies of this coming Messiah. They would have then seen Christ and said, yes, this is the one. This is the Messiah. They have come to know him as savior of their own lives, but now they've kind of stopped. They're just looking at this, and, and, and they, they've become stagnant. And he says, you guys are your babies, in your faith. That's, that's a little bit of a slap in the face to these people. This was not something they wanted to hear. And then on into verse 13, he continues, and anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. If you had to say it any more bluntly, you're a bunch of grown adults that are still drinking mommy's milk. That's hard to take in, right? One, the, the, the message version of the scripture says it like that you are still finger painting is the way, the way it, it's put in that, that version of scripture. While yes, they have received the most amazing gift of mercy and grace um, through Christ as being greater than the law and their inadequacies, it surely wasn't an excuse for them not to work out those inadequacies. That would be like me receiving that car from my parents and saying, you know what, mom and dad, I think I'll keep the silver one. I'll drive it back and forth to school and I'll just look at the black one when I come home. Right? It doesn't make any sense. 
It would be like you giving your child a gift and saying, you know, this is a great gift. I want you to, to take this and then go, ah, you know what, I don't want to open it. I'm just going to look at it in the package. I think it'll be of more value that way. That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. It's like, it's like having something given to you and saying, nah, I, I don't really want it fully. I just want bits and pieces of it. You see, the gift of grace and mercy is a gift that God gives us not to stomp on, but to continue to mature in. As Romans 6 verse 15 says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no, by no means. Or in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Right? The gift of Jesus is greater than you fill in the blank. Whatever that sin may be in your life means we are called to then live a a greater than lifestyle, right? We are called to to grow in our our faith. As the book continues in chapter 6, it says this, Therefore, let us move beyond. There it is. There's the movement. Let us move beyond the elementary teachings, right? The, 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 The spiritual milk, per se, about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from the acts that lead to death and faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. You see, we are called to grow. We are called to come, become more in tune with the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We are called to mature in our faith, to move past the basics, and to move forward in Christ. Now, I believe this morning there are some of you in this room that are right there, though, that, that need to be at the basics. And that's all right. There are many of us in this room that have been right there in those moments. We're at, we were at the basics once ourselves. You're afraid maybe to step out, to get past that, that addiction or the pain of that loss or that sin that is just constantly coming up in your life. But can I tell you one thing about this world and what it says will bring satisfaction? No drug. No high, no amount of alcohol consumed, no number in your bank account, no toys in your garage, no amount of women you sleep with or men that give you compliments will fill you up. The only thing that will bring true fulfillment in this world is Christ. Ben Merrill said a few weeks ago that he's never met a happy sinner. I think he's right, right? Because it doesn't bring the satisfaction that we think it will bring. Sin leaves us empty. God fills us. So that's why we have to understand these initial steps. And we're going to take a look a little bit into those if that's where you're at this morning. He leads it out for us in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He shares six steps that he would call those kind of initial elementary teachings of Christ. The first is this, repentance from sin. What's that mean? That means to, to turn from your current ways, to turn from maybe the drunkenness, the lying, the greed, the pride, the sexual immorality, whatever that may be that it's against the standard of God. This is God's standard. Not anything man says, this is God's standard. And we are called to live to that standard. And if we are not, we are called to repent of those things and turn the other way. Then the second is this, faith in God. To put your your full hope in God. Or as Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not See, to put your, your trust and your, your hope in, in something that sometimes isn't visible, sometimes can be scary. Sometimes you're not sure, sure what the next step of faith may be, but you're saying, I trust God. God will provide for me in this moment. I'm going to have faith in God. And then the next step uh, of baptism. 
right? As it says in there, it calls it cleansing rites. If you read in the King James Version of Scripture, it would say the doctrine of baptism. It's very clear in Scripture that any time that one would repent and put faith in God, that they would take the next step of baptism. That comes from the Greek word baptizio, which literally means to submerge under and to come back up in water. That is an initial step of faith. That's why Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples, simply said it this way when he was asked, what should we do? If Jesus is truly the Messiah, what should we do, Peter? And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Then the fourth is this, the laying on of hands. Now, this is one that We may not talk about a lot inside of the church. We do it from time to time, but we don't talk about it. But I want you to know this, that touch is a a central thing to to how Jesus works, right? In Jesus' ministry, when he touched somebody, that was oftentimes a sign of healing, right? He touched the blind man's eyes, and he was was healed from his blindness. Or the woman who was uh, struggling with this disease and was bleeding, she she came up to Jesus, and she touched the hem of his robe, and she was healed from her, her disease, that, that touch, is, there's something special about touch, right? That's why, uh, as a couple, um, some of you men right now have your, your arms around your spouse because you're saying, I, 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 I care for you, I, I, I like you, I want to, to touch you. Or you hold hands, maybe, as you walk down the, the sidewalk, all right? Or, or, or as uh, when we triumph and we have a great win on the softball field, which our softball team's doing great this year. We've had some good wins. We slap hands, right? We give each other high fives. We shake at the end of the game to say good game to the team that we've just played. That's because touch shows something. It shows affection. It shows gratitude. It's some way that God has given us to connect with others. So in the church... We will talk about touches and laying on of hands. Just, just uh, in the first service, we sent out a group of students who were going to a conference out in Missouri, and we had them up here at the front, and we laid hands on them. We prayed for them that God would send them out as they grow in their walks with Christ. Um, I, I, as a student, uh, after studying in the ministry, I went back to my home church, and the elders ordained me into the ministry, and they laid hands on me and prayed for me that God would, would uh, send me out to share the gospel. Um, all it is is a way of saying, you know what? This touch it represents how God is touching our life. So that's one of the initial steps uh, of faith. Then number five is this, the resurrection of, of the dead. Now, that's a knowledge-based type of thing, right? What exactly does that mean? Well, it means that you, you're trusting in the truth that Jesus truly did three days later. After he died, he actually rose from the grave. It wasn't uh, some joke. It wasn't some conspiracy. No, it actually happened. Jesus actually rose from the dead. And then the same is true of us, that while, yes, these physical bodies, while they are mere tents, we will die someday physically, that we will be raised to walk a new life eternally, with Christ. And then number six, he talks about eternal judgment. This is a knowledge that we will someday stand before eternal judgment and God. Now, if you read into the book of Revelation, it speaks of two books of life, or two books that we found at, at the, the end. And the one is the book of life. If you have given your life over to Christ, if you have recognized him as greater than, you will be in that book of life. You will, and you will receive salvation. And then there will be a book of deeds. We will have to give an account for what we have done on this place. These are the basics of faith. And for some of you, you're right here this morning, and that's great. You need to be right there. You need to be working out those things. 
The Andy Griffith Show um, was a good show. I think it was a show that taught some good morals and lessons. That's something that not many TV shows nowadays can claim that they actually do. Um, But that show, he was always teaching Opie something new. And there's an episode of the Andy Griffith Show where Opie has, I think, I think he actually killed a mama bird. He knocked it out of the tree with a baseball or something. And, and there's three little baby birds in this nest, and he, he's told by Andy, you've got to take care of them. So he's caring for little birds. He's hand-feeding them worms and he's taking care of them. As the episode begins to come to a close, the birds have grown up, and it's time to release them. And there's this conversation between Andy and Opie, and it goes like this. He says, well, Paul, if, if they can't fly away, they could be pets and live right here. Pauses for a second. This is, this is Opie. Then he says, but they don't want to be pets. They're supposed to fly away, just like you said. So he takes the cage, goes down off the, the stoop where they're standing, and pulls, in, pulls out one of the little birds, and he looks it in the eye and says, I hope I did all these things right. I hope you can fly away. Please fly away. And then he, he throws the little bird up in the air, and it flutters away. And then he takes the two, next, the two other birds out and does the same thing with them. And then Opie looks down at the cage, and he he says this. He says, the cage sure does look empty, Paul. And Andy replies, it sure does, but don't the trees look awfully full? You know, for many of you in this room, you've been at that place in the basics, being hand-fed inside of kind of the the cage, in a sense. I'm not calling the church a cage, all right? Don't, don't think that's not what I'm saying. But we've, been, we've heard those initial uh, things. We know of these, these truths. We've, we've come to know the Lord as our, our Savior. We, we know of uh, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. We've studied the basics, and God looks down upon us and says, I know. I did a good job, and it's time to go out and to fill this place up, fill the world, and to share the gospel and the hope that you have with other people. Followers of Christ are called to grow. But in order to move forward, one must watch out that they don't fall back, which then leads us to the next section of this passage of Scripture in verses 4 through 6, which I would say is a passage that has stripped up many people. It's made many question their, uh, their salvation, and I don't think that's what the, the writer of this intended. It's not a message that is, it's not the message that is given inside of this passage. Yes, I believe it's a stern warning. Yes, I believe it cuts, right? Sharper than a double-edged sword. The word of God is. But remember, Christ himself is called the word. In the Gospel of John, it says this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So the word brings life, so keep that in mind as we look into Hebrews chapter 6, reading from verses 4 through 6. It says this, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. That's hard. That's a hard statement to go through. And I studied that out this week, and I got to that. I, I, I had to check my own self, and I wondered, what, 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 what am I supposed to say here? What, what does this passage of Scripture actually mean? And I came across one student's uh, thoughts on this passage. He said this. He said, you know, I think we often let our fears lead us through, through these warning passages. This is certainly a very sobering warning, and the author fully intends it to be so. 
But the end he warns against is not one we need to fear we might accidentally get to. We are not walking a tightrope likely to fall away from God at any moment. And God is not sitting back watching us from a distance to see which way we will go, putting us on test mode just to see how we will do on our own. To come to the point the author is about to describe is possible only by great resistance on, the, on, the part, on our part to the hound of heaven who continually chases us down. So that leaves us with a question. What, what does it mean? Is the author giving some sort of ultimatum? Move forward, don't fall away, or you're going to lose your salvation? No, what the author is telling us is that when we receive the gift of grace that we have been given by Jesus being greater than our sin, that that gift of Christ's grace is something that we are called to work out and to mature in. Now, there's a few things to understand about this passage. First, I'm going to get a little uh, English here. I'm not an English scholar. Please do not put that on me. I was a math student and not good at English growing up. Uh, Matt gives me a hard time in the office about how my grammar skills are still pretty rough. Um, so know this. Um, there are things called pronouns, all right? The pronouns change um, in this. They go from we and us uh, to they and them, all right? So there's a clear distinction that he does not believe that these people are the same people. He's not, the, the author is writing to a certain people. He's not saying you are ones that have, have, uh, have gone too far. That's, that's first important. The second is the verb tense, all right? In the original Greek tense uh, of this verb, it was a continual act, something that continued to, to come forward. So it would say that you are continuing to harden your heart. You've experienced the grace of God. You've decided now to turn your back on God, and you are going to continually walk in that way. It's very hard for one of those people to repent. He used, actually uses the term impossible. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 says it like this. Get up here. It says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sin is left. Emphasis on deliberate and ongoing sin. So, if one continues with the attitude against Christ, they will not be able to repent. That's important for us to understand. That if we've hardened our heart, we've come in, we've come in contact with people like this, right? They, they were people that we saw as faithful people. They went to church. They were studying. They, they were growing in the rock. And then all of a sudden they decided, you know what? I, I don't really care about the word of God. I'm going to harden my heart against this. And you've, you've gone up and you said, no, no, I want to share this truth with you. And they have a heart that says, I don't care right now. Do not try to share that truth with me. They have hardened their heart. Does that not mean that the spirit of God can give them the power to repent once again? Yes, the Spirit can give them that power. It doesn't say that Christ cannot forgive them. It doesn't say that they cannot be restored to salvation. Remember, it is Jesus himself who says this, which I think is really, really key right here. What is impossible with man is possible with God. All right? All in all, while this should be a hard check on our hearts, I do not think the author meant this to, to, for us to question our salvation. But instead, it's written to remind us that we are called to move forward and not to fall away. We know that, too, because of this. As the author switches back his pronouns, as he goes back from they and thus to we and us, he says this in verse, uh, verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. All right? He goes right back to that truth. We're convinced that Jesus is greater than. So it is with that that we are left. Faith. Faith in what? Faith in 
Christ, who is greater than anything that we could ever imagine. He's the greatest gift we have ever been given. Faith in salvation, faith that our inadequacies will not overcome his ability to render out those inadequacies, to work harder, to do better. A gift that we accepted as a great gift, one that we did not just get given, that we received and put to use. And because of that faith, we can now stand confidently knowing that we must move forward. You know, I think I could, uh, I could sum it up with my bicycle right here. Um, believe it or not, this bicycle, well, not this bicycle, but I learned how to ride a bicycle when I was two years old. I know, it's crazy. I called my mom this week and made sure this story was true because I obviously don't remember. Um, so I called mom. I said, Mom, you know, when did I learn how to ride a bicycle? She said, two. I said, are you sure, Mom? That sounds kind of crazy. I have a two-year-old right now. I'm thinking, I can't imagine her actually riding a bicycle right now. She said, no. Now, I had an older brother. My older brother's two years older than me, uh, so he was four at the time. He knew how to ride his big boy bike, um, and I wanted to be like my older brother, so I had this little, I think it was eight-inch wheel, little black bicycle, um, and I had training wheels on it at first, and I got on. I don't remember this, but from what mom shared, I was a little wobbly at first, but I quickly decided I was ready to get the training wheels off and learn how to ride the bike all by myself, and to this day, my parents have video of me three months before my third birthday, riding a bicycle without training wheels. Um, I know it sounds kind of crazy. But what I look back on is I realized that I matured uh, because I had somebody I looked up to in the faith. And I looked at my older brother and uh, maybe not in faith, but in the bicycle side of things, I I saw him as uh, somebody I wanted to be like him. And I wanted to grow past my uh, inadequacies to use the training wheels. I wanted to get past the basics, and I wanted to get on the bike all by myself. You know, I think that's where some of us are at this morning. That's all right. It's all right to start out. Some of us need to get on, and we need the training wheels. We need the, the spiritual milk. We need those basics first. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not, not, we've all been there. We've all started somewhere, and we need to start there. We need to get on the bike with the training wheels and be a little wobbly at times. For some of us, though, we've been there for a while, and we need to take the training wheels off, all right? We need to start maturing in our faith. We need to be, begin starting to take these, these steps moving forward in the faith. And then the thing I noticed now, obviously, this isn't the same bike. If I was riding the 8-inch the uh, wheel bike, I looked like an ape riding it these days. Uh, I've gotten a little bigger, I'm sure, and I've gotten a nicer bike. I like to ride it. Some of you have probably seen me up and down the streets of Washington on my bicycle, um, but I've learned something. I try not to rip my pants as I pull that over there. Uh, I've learned something that if you try to sit on a bike and just sit still, you can't do it, right? You just fall over, right? A bike is meant to, to move forward. It's meant to, it's meant to have action put to it. It's meant to, to go take you somewhere that you haven't been before. And the same is true of our faith. It's not meant to sit still trying to balance and keep everything in somewhat of an order. No, it's meant to put action to. It's meant to move. I told you the writer seemed to take a pause. He broke in his, his uh, topic about Jesus is greater than. He takes a focus on the people. And he shares some hard truths, right? Sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates. It hurts. It doesn't feel good when you're told, hey, you look like babies right now. And you guys are supposed to be grown adults. You're supposed to be maturing in your faith. And watch out that you don't fall away because that's a bad, bad thing. We don't want you to fall away. But then he comes back to that 
that truth. And he says in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, he says this, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever. The gift of salvation is an anchor for our soul. A great gift, but a gift that is meant to be received and then put to use. So this morning, if for you, you're saying, you know what, I haven't taken those initial steps. And I'm ready to, to take those steps. I, I, I need to repent. I need to start believing in God. I need to come and be baptized. I need to take on these initial things of the faith, these elementary teachings. I'm going to encourage you this morning here in just a moment to come and to see Tom. He'll be over here. Or Luke, one of our elders, will be here by the baptistry if you'd like to meet with one of them. Or for maybe for you, you're saying, you know what, I've been there. I need to take the training wheels off. And, you know, I just need to take a time and, and pray that I would make those, those next steps. Or I, I need, to, need to start putting some action to it. And, and I want to get more involved. I want to, I want to try to start uh, fleshing out my faith more. You want to be challenged this morning or you want to be prayed with. You can come to these steps and pray. Or you can come meet over here with me. I'd love to pray with you by the cross. Whatever that decision is, let me encourage you this morning that Jesus is greater. I love this promise. I love that this was the, the, the thing we came up with on the stage. That's what we get to look at the whole time we're studying. He is greater than the inadequacies of our, our, our lives, the things that we're not good at and the things we struggle with. He's greater than those things, but he didn't call us to live in those inadequacies. He called us to move forward, to take steps forward, to mature in the faith. Let's pray.